This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Oh, hey, heard you love rom-coms and true crime. Well, you've come to the right place. I know. We're so good at it. I, I guess we've, we're practiced it's now. True. Remember the first time we did it this way and oh you were God. like, no, Avrin, no, no, <laughs> you can't, you can't wait for me. It's a delay because we're on a phone. <laughs> and I was like, I don't understand. I'm trying to follow you. And you're like, no, no, we, we set the rhythm. Just do it. It's, it's so hard, but whatever. We, we totally got it. No, you're right. It took us a second, but it's, I, I know, there is right? a delay. That's the thing. And we're so lucky because we have continued to record through COVID. How many months is it? Has it been 18 months? Is it longer? No, okay, 18 months. Exactly. A year and a half of <sighs> just yeah. bizarro world. <laughs> it's so crazy. I think this has helped me uh, mentally survive. Yeah. Were you telling me about an article that you read about how people are grumpy right now? I heard it. It wasn't something I read. It was something I listened to on NPR about how like people just like across the board have never been crankier, less less satisfied with all things. Yeah. And they, it's something to do with the brain can only like compartmentalize stress for so long. Like when you're in a high stress situation, like a pandemic, mm -hmm. at first everyone's like, okay, this will end eventually. And that, the knowledge of that will keep me sane. And then as time goes on and it seems like it ends and then it blows back through and things get bad again. And it's just like, it seems now never ending. People are like, no, my brain doesn't work that way. I agree. My brain won't do it. Yeah. And it's so, I, I feel grumpy a lot. No, yeah, me too. I feel like this past week or two, or, or maybe it's been the past month, but uh, I was reading an article in the Times and it was talking about how a lot of uh, parents, but people who are having to make big decisions and for uh, the article I was reading was about parenting and it was like big decisions regarding like the pandemic because our kids are not vaccinated and all these things. And it's something about where you become dead inside. And it was, they said there's another name for it called psychic numbing. And it's a real thing. Wow. Humans can make quick decisions like animalistic, like a bear is coming. <laughs> you know, right. let's run. Do this unless, thing. unless you're not supposed to run when a bear comes. I oh can't my remember. <laughs> Dude. I took a quiz on that between a black bear and a brown bear. Let's just say I'm probably going to die. <laughs> I, um, hi, everyone. Welcome hi. to Rom Crime. Speaking of just like true crime in the world, what a week. Oh. Like, first of all, Robert Durst, guilty of murder. And remember, I went. That's right. Avrin was sitting in on that mm -hmm. testimony or whatever it was. I went to that trial and I was like, yeah, well, we all know he did it. But we'll see what happens. And so I'm glad that I wasn't wrong. <laughs> guilty of killing 
his, his best friend, yep. okay. Susan Berman. So I don't know what the deal is with his wife, Kathy, if they will ever actually be able to formally charge him with that since she's never been found. Mm. Um, but at least he'll go to jail for for one of the murders he's committed because yeah. there's been more than one. There's been at least three that we know about. Uh. And then also, have you been reading about this whole like Gabby Pepito, Brian um, Laundry? They're like... 22 and 23 and they were doing a big western cross-country van life like through all of the national forests and she's been missing only a little and he came back to florida without her and has been refusing to speak to the police uh through his lawyer or whatever and now he's missing what so i don't know if i had to wager a guess which it makes me sad to do because i hope that honestly maybe they'll just find both of them alive and well like maybe she fell down and he thought she'd run off and so he just took off her home and then the I don't know I feel I fear that they're gonna find her you know done 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 foul play style by him and that he's probably run off to do some foul play to himself now but we'll see I don't know I was thinking that uh, just because I recently did like a big three-week road trip with my husband through a couple of those same national parks and all that stuff. Right, you you did. I don't know, when they show on the news when I was watching about it, like the videos of them and stuff, like they seem so happy and they're so young and carefree and you're like, what could have gone so wrong so quickly? Oftentimes it's like meth. Meth is the thing that oh, is, I don't know. Well, I don't know if they were into meth. that, but I feel like those well, they kind were of from drugs Florida. Really messed you up. So, yeah. Could be. Sorry, Florida. I don't know why I said that. That was. Rude. I mean, you know what? There is meth everywhere. It, there's pockets, and I just want to once in a while, once again, I did it on my other podcast. But guys, don't do coke right now. There is. They are. La- it is laced with fentanyl. Like four comedians just died a couple weeks ago. I, I talked about it on the other podcast, but I was just yeah, like, no, people, don't do cocaine. It is a bad time to be doing it because unless yeah. you have like some sort of a testing kit for fentanyl. That's all I have to say. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Is that a thing? You can... I think so. I, right. I mean, well, I if, you're, if you are going up, to make but... the decision to do cocaine, I guess then, yeah, test that shit first. I will get back uh, to or, you Or, you know, next just steer clear. Yeah, steer, steer clear. Yeah, steer um, clear. But yeah, I just thought, wow, it's been such a week in terms of the just crime being kind of at the forefront of things that are popping up, yeah. you know, like front page news. And that's part of kind of this, it's a similar vibe to the story that I'm going to tell you, Ooh. which was a crime that was splashed all over the tabloids and newspapers in the 70s. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, per our new format, yes. Vanya selected um, the movie Fool's Russian. Yay. Which I I just freaking love that song, Me too. and I and I like the movie very much. I always it always for some reason all I can think of is Grace Papaya Hot Dogs every time I hear think about that movie. We will get to that. Oh my god! Yes, and then so we're going to compare the Fool's Russian story to the murder of Roseanne Quinn, um, better known as the Good Bar Murder. Oh. If you are somebody who was alive and old enough to be reading about these things in the 70s, that's probably more familiar than the name Roseanne Quinn. But they're, they're called the Good Bar Murder. Ooh, okay. I cannot wait to hear. So I would like to say, which I haven't done before, hey guys, spoiler alert. Because <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done that once on any of these. Well, fair enough. That's okay. So you've done it now. Spoiler alert, everyone. If you don't want to know how Fool's Russian plays out, don't listen. <laughs> yeah, watch it first and then listen. It's directed by a, a man named Andy Tennant, and it came out in 1997. So like, 
I mean, how many years ago? It was like 20 some, 25 years ago. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and it stars Salma Hayek, who was 29 at the time, and Matthew Perry, who was 28. The scene opens, it's Christmas in New York, and it is bustling. There are people everywhere. I don't know if you, if anybody's been to New York. It's it's such a fun time to be. Yeah, in the city. In the city. And where are the Christmas where's the Christmas tree? It's in Rockefeller Center. Thank you. Rockefeller Center area. That kind of felt like that's where this was. And you see Matthew Perry, his character is Alex Whitman holding this huge Marlin. He just came from Miami. He's a businessman. He's he's a guy who opens nightclubs. Alex. Alex Whitman. Okay, Jeff, it's a long story was good at being single. I'm looking for Alex. He just ducked out. And his life was right on track. You are taking over in Vegas. No, 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 no. Everything that's famous about Las Vegas is about leaving it. That movie, the song, even the mob left Las Vegas. And he's heading up. All these people are leaving out of this office building. He heads up to his floor and they're having a a fun like holiday party. So we see him sort of doing that. And then we cut to, this is, is this section I like to call the introduction of the characters. Mm-hmm. And then we meet our other character, Isabel Fuentes, played by, like I said, Salma Hayek. We're in central Mexico and it is, the landscape is serene and gorgeous. And we see the absolutely beautiful Salma Hayek floating on an inner tube in a river. And she's like so beautiful. You know, she's wearing like a skirt. She's not wearing even a swimsuit. And then a couple of kids she apparently stole the inner tube from are mm-hmm. like, hey, are you going to marry that policeman in Las Vegas? And she says, I wish I knew. So we cut quickly back to New York City and we're at the party. We find out one of his best friends, this guy named Jeff, who's like a hilarious actor. And he's like the smarmy best friend. And by Mm -hmm. the way, as the movie goes on, I feel like their accents get more New York-y. I'm like, guys, just give it a... Like, the actors need to just calm the hell down. But anyways, he's the smarmy guy. He's like, listen, I know you you want to go to Tokyo. He's like practicing speaking Japanese. But if you go to Las Vegas, then I just made a deal for the Midtown Club. And that's like the big thing, right? So he's like, okay, fine. So he's on his way to, way to Vegas. And we see this montage of all the famous Vegas hotels. We see like the Chapel of Love. And then we see Selma driving in this like really cool old Bronco. Um, She's driving over the Hoover Dam and it's the right between Nevada and I think Arizona. And she always flips a coin out and makes a wish over the dam. Yeah. Right. I've been there. Have you? I've never been there. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. The next section of this uh, movie structure, rom-com is of course the meat cute. I don't know mm-hmm. why. Why do they call it that? Do you know? It's like a cute time I don't know the origins meet. of it, but yeah. it's like the meet cute is how they arrange an adorable way for people to meet each other in these like romantic comedy situations. Exactly. I think that's where the phrase comes from. That must be. And the sparks fly. Oh, my goodness. So she, you see him in this Mexican restaurant. And he's got like 10 entrees. He's eating. He's what the hell, dude? It's like Chandler Bing is a little bit coming out there. But anyways, he's eating and then you see her, she's in she's on a phone, like a phone that you put a quarter in, a payphone. Pay that doesn't really <laughs> exist anymore. That's like sort of near the bathrooms and she's talking, probably her best friend Lainey, but we get to that. So she's practicing breaking up with the policeman. Oh. Her grandfather told her that she had to wait for a sign or her grandmother. It might have been a grandmother wait. So she's this whole thing 
waiting for signs. And Matthew Perry, sorry, Alex Whitman is overhearing and he's like, all that waiting for a sign stuff, is that religious or cultural? Like, because she's Mexican and he's, I don't know, a white boy, I guess. And <laughs> it was a weird kind of, but that's their like yeah. meet cute, right? Where he's like, is is it because you're crazy religious or because your culture is strange from mine? Like superstitious. <laughs> How exactly. cute. I know, right? <laughs> horrible, horrible. So we do, throughout this whole movie, we kind of teeter the line of like, racist or not racist, you know? So she's kind of like, do you always listen to other people's conversations? And he's like, do you, he let her cut in front of him because she really has to pee. And she's so adorable. And he's like, she's like, do you want to go to the end of the line? That's what he says. He just says, it sounded a little deep for a Friday night. And she says, a religion is important in our culture, at least in my family. Your destiny has already been decided. You just have to read the signs. You don't believe that? And he was like, if a bus hits a guy, it's because he wasn't looking, not because of a master plan. They have a cute little talk. And of course, the next thing is they bone in his rented house in the neighborhood he's living in Las Vegas. She wakes up and she does like the sneaking out underneath his arm or whatever. And it's kind of funny. You see her hand reach back underneath his head and grab her underwear. They don't show any hardcore boning, but they kind of allude to it and make it cute. They're like, they definitely did the sexy stuff. They did it. Exactly. And three months later, we're on his job site in Las Vegas. We're introduced to this old family friend, Catherine Stewart, who is like the waspiest wasp of waspiness. <laughs> and she's looking for Alex and he's trying to avoid her because she's just like loves him and she's always loved him. And then oh, she's looking for like a Let's not be just lifelong friends anymore. I think so. Yeah. And he he's a workaholic. He's kind of a bachelor for life, this guy. And then we cut to a meeting with this woman who this older lady who's a, an amazing actress and she's like smoking cigarettes. And it's kind of assumed that like with Jeff, his buddy, that he's going to have to do some dirty shit to her to get like apparently the deal she, yeah, she knows exactly. She knows like people from OSHA. And so she can help all these permits go through. <laughs> just oh like goodness. what amazing yeah jeff's like hey quid pro quo man and then isabel shows up at the door and alex of course is surprised to see her because they haven't seen each other since they blinked three months ago i need another word for having sex can someone give me something creative i know i love that we both go for like the b words boned, boned boinked they bumped uglies i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i just spit my coke zero everywhere um yes yeah, so you know we're taking a. We're taking a list for that. I'd like I'd like something else. So yeah. So Alex Alex is like, oh God, you look so great. How have you been? You just ran out of there. You know? I never did anything like that before. Going home with someone I don't know. It was just one of those spontaneous things. So uh, how you been? Pregnant. Really? We were only together one night. That's all it took. I wore a condom. Lots of them. Well, one lots of them didn't of them? work. Yeah, I know. I'm like, lots of them? Uh, either either he's saying that they had sex all night long or that they he put a lot li- of them on for one yeah, time. He, like, la- he layered them <laughs> up. Oh, my God. I don't think that's how it works. Exactly. And she, she's, she just thought it was the right thing to do. She came to him. She wanted to tell him. And he's like momentarily super relieved because he thinks she's going to get an abortion. And she's like, no, 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 I'm keeping it. Like, I just wanted you to know. And she's felt it like it was the right thing to do. And then she jumps in her car and leaves. And he follows and leaves the older lady who he's supposed to like, you know, give head do the to dirty. or something. I don't know. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, I know. So then she drives. I forgot to, about that right? detail of like the kind of creepy older lady yeah. that's like, I will help you for in exchange for exactly. some, some fun time in this 
this like on-site trailer thing. Yeah, <laughs> and this is written by women. So it's not like, I mean, I'm kind of thinking that the ladies who wrote it were like, this happens to women all the time. So maybe he's they're flipping the script a little bit with, so making a guy have to do something. Um, I don't know. And by the way, this is probably part of the time where, just as just like a side note, but remember Harvey Weinstein? Uh, yes, he was probably starting to torture her around this time. Um, eventually, you know, it was 2002 when Frida came out that she co-produced, right. but like she and really tortured her. Yeah, yeah. beautiful Simon Hayek, smart, wonderfully creative, artistic Simon Hayek had to put up with that piece of shit. Yeah. Side note on that one, just so you know, he jumps in his car and follows her. She's at the Hoover Dam because that's a place where she likes, and she's sitting on the ledge, and he's like, "Don't jump!" She's like, "You mm. idiot! I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna jump." And he's like, you walked out on me at five in the morning three months ago. I'm supposed to know what to do. So he's like, what can I do? I want to do something to help. Come meet my family. That way, when they ask who the father is, I can say, you remember, you met him once. Say, say when and I'm there. And she said, when? Because <laughs> tonight was the weekly family dinner. So they talk about how her family has dinner once a week and how his family only sees each other on holidays. And so right there, we're seeing a divide. Right. But just like what he thinks of as family versus what she thinks of as exactly. family. Right. Like for, for her, family is very important for him. Family is holidays only. As they're about to walk up, he's like, oh, what's your last name? Fuentes. And you're Alex Whitman. Okay, good. So now they know each other's last name. <laughs> and they enter the party. And it's a huge, huge family. Like, not just a 10 person. There's like 40 to 50 people there. And everyone stops and stares. The music stops. There's like beautiful music playing. And everybody's it's like, right. a, it's like a scratch of the record moment. And Isabel introduces Alex to her parents. And her dad obviously is not happy. Her mother says... You will have to forgive my husband. I think he wishes she were still six years old. You will understand one day when you are a father. Rut row. Oh. I know. But throughout this whole party, he is falling in love with her family. He He's just not used to people being so warm and, you know, they're eating and talking and laughing. And an auntie or a cousin, they ask Alex if he can hold the baby while she fixes herself a plate. Can I fix myself a plate? I mean, <laughs> and Isabel right. sees him in slow motion. This is like this wonderful moment he's like doing well he's kissing the baby's head and both of them are clearly thinking of what it would like be like to have a baby and to be together and you know what this makes me think of Avrin? it makes me think hmm. of when our our friend samantha brentmore does a lot of voiceovers for erotica and yeah a lot of the rom-com like structure is similar to erotica Right, but with where it's with less sex, but same exact kind of like storyline, the way they lay everything out. It's always about a baby and like having a baby. It's just bizarre. Afterwards, they're cleaning up after the party and Isabella says, a little sad but determined, I'm glad they got to meet you. And he realizes they're going to hate me, aren't they? And she's like, no, I, I won't let them. And then he walks up to her and starts kissing her passionately. And it's like, ooh. Oh. And, and you can feel their chemistry. I really like it. Right. So he wants to have a relationship or at least give his number so she can reach him. And she's like, no, dude. He stands in front of her car. Isabel's like, Alex, don't do this. There's nothing to say. And he's like, just wait a minute. You, this is also just such a good rom-com. He's like, you're everything I never knew I wanted. I think yes. we should get married oh, yeah. right now. I think we should get married right now so this is pretty intense um so she goes from no i'm not gonna take your phone number to yeah okay let's go get married right now i I don't know what it is but there's something about the moment and they go to like the chapel of love and get elvis walks her down the aisle and 
then tries to make out with her for a second, which is a little gross. But <laughs> And they spend the night in a fancy hotel and it seems like they make love. And I'm not going to say that very often, but it felt make lovey. The next day he goes to work. Hey, Alex, there's a woman on line one. She says she's your wife. You're married? The one with the body? The nightmare begins. So your your father, is, is he a big man or? Who is this? Mama, Papa, this is Alex. Whitman. I welcome you in my home. Now this is how you repay me, stealing my only daughter! So now they hate him even though he's married to their daughter, not just the guy that got her pregnant and they never saw him again. Yes. And so we see the best friend, Lainey, who's played by Siobhan Fallon, who's a lady who is like always talks like this. She's like, mm-hmm. they're at dinner with her, Lainey, and Jeff and the two of them. And they realize that he lives in Manhattan. She didn't know that. She thought he lived there. But she lives oh, here and, and her family's here and her work's here. And so they have their first fight. And then Lainey says, see, this is the kind of conversation that happens on a second date. <laughs> it's really funny. And then they go back home. Not everyone is upset in her family. So they redecorate the house in some fun, vibrant colors. And there's a montage of them where they're kind of getting to know each other, becoming a couple. She goes to pee and he... He's while he's brushing his teeth, and she le- he leaves, and she grabs him, and makes him like stay in the bathroom. <laughs> right, <laughs> which like I you're think gonna is be, cute. you're gonna have to be cool with me peeing in front of yeah. you. Yeah, I mean those are moments. He's seeing her and and falling more in love. Her making dinner and dancing. We see her taking photos, and she's like I said, so goddamn cool. Alex has her for dinner at the work site. It's like a romantic dinner. He's basically at this point trying to get her to like l- want to move to New York. He keeps dropping hints and he drops the Gray's papaya. He's like, oh man, the, what would be perfect is if this was a Gray's papaya hot dog. It's just okay. It's just okay. It's not that great. And when my husband and I first moved there, we ate it like almost every day because we were so goddamn poor. I mean, you can get right. a full meal gross for like two bucks or three bucks. I mean, they're good, but yeah, it's just a hot dog. He tells her of a great place in New York where you can sit in Central Park and watch the entire city walk by. And she tells of a place in the canyon, in the Grand Canyon, where you can sit and no one would know if you died. (laughs) (laughs) So, So, like, being in the middle of nowhere nature versus living in the city of Manhattan. Those are two very separate wants. Yeah, If you were dating, that would for sure be a deal breaker because one of you... Or maybe it wouldn't. Maybe maybe the love is so right. strong that you're like, we could do halftime here, halftime there. They'll, I don't have to work it out for them, but I'm sure they will. Mm-hmm. So she's in church and she's lighting candles, candles with her mother and she's very frustrated with him and what's going on. And she tells her mom that she sent her brothers out to go shooting with him. So they're going to oh. shoot. And the next scene is Isabella or Isabel having lunch with uh, her friend Lainey and guess what? Kathy Stewart just happened to be sitting at the next table over. And she's like, did you say Alex Whitman? Remember Kathy Stewart? Uh The friend that wishes that she was his wife. She's like, Mm -hmm. how do you know him? I'm his wife. And then Lainey's like, and they're going to have a baby. So it's so scandalous. But anyways, back to the shooting in the desert. There's a snake. He almost gets shot at. He comes back home and they've given him tequila because he fell back into a cactus cactus. and they're all up his (laughs) butt. And he's like, Lucy, you got some splaining doo doo, which is fu- <laughs> pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and then this is the grossest part of the movie. He pours tequila in the rug and licks it because he can't get it. I'm just like, that's nasty. That's, yeah, that's nasty, gross. Matthew Perry. Gross. And then we meet his parents. They knock on the door because Kathy had called them and was like, you better get down and see what your son is up to. <laughs> it is all revealed that he 
did not tell his parents that he was married. Oh. That he got married. He didn't tell them anything. And she has been going through this whole thing with her family and she's pissed. They think she's the maid. It is very awkward. And then the families meet because it's, you know, they're married. So they go for Cinco de Mayo. They go on a boating trip. And the fathers, they first bond over how silly their kids are acting. And the mothers think, no, no, it's romantic. They're in love. And then his mom is shit-faced. And she's like, let's calm down, shall we? They're in love and love is a wonderful thing. And then, of course, it erupts in a fight. Alex's dad's, Alex's dad yells, if you haven't noticed, the white people are melting out here. And they get sunburned. But, you know. The white people are melting? Oh, so they do go, like, so he comes from, like, like an actual racist family. <laughs> it seems like, it seems so. And the next day, Alex is talking to Jeff, and he's based, Jeff's like, uh, he had just gotten divorced. He's like, you have a relationship that's based on heat. Just end it now and save yourself, because he's bitter about his own divorce. Alex then thinks, no, no, I love her. So he runs to the, her doctor's appointment, which apparently he hasn't been to one with her yet. But he hears the baby's heartbeat. He sees the baby move. And then again, falls back in. He's like back in it. And it's his birthday. She takes him to the Grand Canyon and they have a picnic. The very first time I came here, she says, my father told me about a family of squirrels that lived on the plateau. He said that one day the canyon split. Half the squirrels were on the north rim and the other half on the south. And over time, the two families became different. Each one adjusted to their environment. The ones in the north were dark and bushy-tailed and have bigger ears. The ones on the south were leaner, meaner, and much prettier. Even though they look different and acted different, they are the exact same squirrel. They just grew up on different sides. And Alex is like, and this canyon between them, will they be able to cross it? Well, she basically is like, I'll make you a deal. I'll go to New York when the, after the baby's born. And he's like, oh, my God, yay. And then he, she brings him Gray's papaya, has it like delivered barf, whatever. Um, problems at work start to arise. He he has to go to New York. And apparently the Midtown Club is opening sooner. So he doesn't tell Isabel that he's going to have to go to New York earlier than that. But he just, it, this is the weird thing about him is like, I, I think about men in communication. Now, I have a husband who I have had to teach him how to communicate because he's not a communicator. Like when he's upset, he doesn't even know why he's upset. I have to like drag that shit out of him. <laughs> but this is like to an extra level of like just withholding because it's uncomfortable. Like he didn't tell his parents right. because it was an uncomfortable conversation. You have to like talk if you just to people. Yeah, if you would just explain the actual situation to someone, then you would create a lot less problems for yourself. I think like so too. I have to go back to New York early for work. Exactly. Please come with me. <laughs> and so he, so it's the opening of the club. They go there. She's pregnant. She's having some pains. So she finds out. The, the boss is like, I'm so excited. You guys are moving next week. And she's like, excuse me. And she's pissed. She leaves. She jets out. He follows her. And then she's like, why are you afraid of me? Why do you alienate me from your life? It's such a good scene. You guys got to watch it. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. And then basically he says the unforgivable. He says, I have worked my entire life for an opportunity like this, and I'm not giving it up because one night I put a $5 ring on your finger with Elvis as a witness. Oof. Yeah. He goes home after the party to an empty house with his chihuahua. He has a chihuahua. Gets a call. It's Lainey. She, Isabel, went to the hospital. And he comes, and he's like, you, she's like, you can leave now. The baby's gone. There's no baby. So it's a really sad thing. He goes back to New York. She goes back to, Me she goes to Mexico. And... He's doing the Midtown Club. He's get very sad. He gets served divorce papers. So she had told him she lost the baby? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
And at this point, she's in Mexico, and she seems to have lost her faith. Like, she doesn't go to church and all these things. So she is kind of who he was in the beginning, where before she was all about the signs. And now she's just like kind of a bitter, sad, really sad person after a breakup like that. In my mind, I was thinking like, after losing a baby too, your hormones must be crazy. However, we see Matt Perry, uh, or excuse me, Alex Whitman in New York, and he's He's sad. He doesn't. He makes he makes a plan to go see Kathy Stewart and and go on a vacation with his parents and her parents. But then he sees this priest, and the priest is like, "There are signs everywhere. You look lost. There are signs everywhere to help you find your way." And he proceeds to see a Chihuahua. He sees an ad for a Vegas. He sees like a photo of the Grand Canyon, and he's on his way to the helipad in the Hudson. Which, by the way, we I used to always drive by that. And I'm like, who the hell is taking a goddamn helicopter on the goddamn Hudson River in the um, building before you know you get out to the pad? He sees this little girl. She looks like a little Mexican girl that looks similar to Isabel. And she, as he walks outside, she runs to the glass and the mom's like, Isabel, I told you not to blah, blah, blah. And Alex is frozen. Kathy says, Alex, are you okay? I got, he whispers something in her ear and he now is going to get to Isabel. Right. He's like, I've seen the signs. Yeah. And he runs, he flies, he takes a bus and rides a mule to the great grandmother's house mm-hmm. in central Mexico. And he's trying to talk to her in Spanish. She's like, oh, so you're her great love but in Spanish. She went home to give birth to your baby. And he doesn't understand, obviously. So she's left. We see her driving in her cool car. He takes a plane and he's going to meet her on that Hoover Dam. The Hoover Dam. And now it's raining. It's raining hard. She almost runs over him and she gets out of the car. She's like, what are you doing, you idiot? He's like, I love you so much. It hurts. And they, at midnight, they're going to be divorced. And then he's like, what the hell is going on with your stomach? Because... <laughs> He thought she lost a baby. And he's like, we're going to have a baby. She's like, no, I'm going to have a baby. You're going to call 911. And the baby is born on the Hoover Dam. And the birth scene is honestly hilarious because they do, they don't make it seem like it's not painful. It definitely seems like it's right. painful. But the uh, either EMT or the police officer who delivers a baby worked his ass off. Man, that day player just, she's like, I hate you. He's like, they all say that. And then he give, you know, he hands her the baby, a clean baby, by the way. And if you course, have a real yeah. baby, they're very bloody and, uh, you know. Well, maybe the rain washed oh, it off on good. you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> exactly. And Alex kisses a coin and throws it over the edge of the Hoover Dam. And she says, that was a little super superstitious, don't you think? And he's like, I don't want to tempt fate. And then we hear the song that you love. Wise men say. And then we see a beautiful wedding with the whole family on the edge of the Grand Canyon. And that is the end. And I fucking love this movie. And I hope I did it justice. It's hard to get through. You did. I forgot a lot of it. Yeah, I will. I will. Oh, man. I just remember that. Yeah, she's just so fucking beautiful and so fucking cool in the movie. And Matthew Perry is just so damn charming and quirky Mm -hmm. and like lovable and that they did have really good chemistry which i think is ultimately the most important thing in a romantic comedy like the ones that do well it's because the two people that we're supposed to be rooting for like whatever exists between them is like pure magic on screen i hundred percent agree with that's why cheesy ass movies can feel like the best movie you've ever seen and they're both good actors she my god after she tells him to leave in the in the hospital she cries i'm like you, uh, she's one of my favorite actresses. Yeah, I she's think awesome. she is 
amazing. I think if people give her a hard time because she's beautiful, it's harder sometimes for really beautiful people to be taken Take that seriously. seriously. But yeah. my God, she's so great. And if you like her and haven't seen Frida yet, watch Frida. She is incredible. She is very, very good. Very but I do good. think you're right, Avrin. I think it's about the chemistry because the, the story is very simple, really. I mean, there's some fun, quirky things, but it's the way that these two deliver. Yeah. Okay, so what do we got? So um, basically the way I picked the story was you told me you wanted to do that movie. And I, I was trying to get way too deep into like, okay, so I have to find some kind of rom crime that centers around like two people with cultural differences. And finally I was like, Avarant. Like, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with that. So I was like, okay, so what's the basic premise of the movie? Um, these two people meet, have a one night stand, and mm-hmm. it changes the course of their lives forever. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to find a crime based on a one night stand. And I came across, there's obviously, unfortunately, um, lots of them, but I came across one that actually was so sensationalized when it happened back in 1973 in New York that not only was a novel written about it, but a movie was made about it. Um, And then ultimately there was another book, which is the one that I read, called Closing Time, The True Story of the Looking for Mr. Goodbar Murder, which was written by Lacey Fosper, who was a journalist for the New York Times, who covered it for the Times when it happened. And then she wrote like a a nonfiction version of it, but it's interpretive nonfiction because somebody died so like what they said or did can never be like 100% known so I got a lot of really interesting insight um, which I'll talk to you about after I just tell you the story of what happened so that is how I picked this one to tie in with um, with Fool's Rush In so on January 1st 1973 Roseanne Quinn a 28 year old school teacher met a man who called himself Charlie Smith at W.M. Tweed's Bar on 72nd Street of New York's Upper West Side. Roseanne was a regular at Tweed's, seeing as it was across the street from her apartment, and that night she was determined to enjoy herself after having spent New Year's Eve alone in her apartment. Charlie Smith was blonde and blue-eyed and looked super cool in his leather jacket. After chatting for several hours, the two left the bar and headed back to Roseanne's apartment. Exactly what took place in her home that night can never be fully known. On January 2nd, when Roseanne, who was a teacher of eight-year-old students at St. Joseph's School for the Deaf, failed to show up to work. The school tried calling and got no answer. Then on January 3rd, when Roseanne failed to show up again, worried something may be wrong or like maybe she was sick or something bad had happened, the school sent one of Roseanne's fellow teachers to her apartment to check on her. The co-worker knocked, but there was no answer. He then went and found the building super, explained the situation, and asked to be let into her apartment. When the men entered, they walked into a grisly scene. Roseanne lying on her back on the middle of her bed with a blue silk robe placed over her body and blood everywhere. The police were called and detectives arrived um, at her apartment. It was then discovered that underneath the blue robe, Roseanne had been stabbed 18 times in her neck and torso. She had also been beaten badly and her face bludgeoned with a white stone statue that strangely actually resembled Roseanne herself. Then finally, the gruesome discovery, and this is so upsetting, that a red candle, the same as several of the red candles strewn all over her apartment, had been pushed inside of her. On the desk next to her bed were two sketches, one of Mickey Mouse and one of Donald Duck. So at this point, detectives aren't sure if this was like a knock on the door and push in style type of assault or if she 
knew her killer and let him in because there were no signs of forced entry. They also discovered that there were no fingerprints on a knife, which was the murder weapon that was found in her sink. There were no fingerprints on any of the shower knobs in her shower that had been left on after the killer presumably washed himself off. They also couldn't find a single fingerprint on any any of the elevator buttons in the elevator in her building, um, which told them that the killer had clearly cleaned up after himself. So with no physical evidence to work with, police start canvassing the neighbors. No one had heard anything coming from Roseanne's apartment, which seemed hard to believe because clearly there had been like a massive struggle. But it had taken place on New Year's Day, which is a holiday, and a lot of her neighbors were out of town because, you know, it was the holiday season. So nobody had heard anything. Um, So then police decide that they're going to start canvassing the neighborhood businesses. When detectives walked into Tweed's bar and asked the bartender if he knew a Roseanne Quinn, he said yes, he knew her very well. She was a regular at his bar and had been for like the last several years. They asked him when he had last seen Roseanne, and he said, well, not for a couple of days. Maybe, I think maybe she was here Monday night, he told them. They asked if she was with anyone, and he said he really couldn't be sure. Then the cops told him that Roseanne had been murdered, and the bartender offered them their first lead. He told them about a man named Freddie Watson, who Roseanne had been seeing for a bit the year before, and the relationship had ended really badly after Freddie had beaten Roseanne, leaving her with bruises and a black eye. So they're like, okay, she has like a violent ex-boyfriend in her past. That's something to go on. Mm -hmm. So with, with this new lead, police go back to Roseanne's building to see if any of her neighbors can corroborate the bartender's story about her getting beat up by a boyfriend. And one of her neighbors, who's an older woman, says that she did hear a big fight coming from her apartment the year before, and that when the man had run out yelling, like, screaming profanities back towards Roseanne, she had gone into her apartment and found her on the floor crying, and she did indeed have a black eye and had clearly been roughed up. But then the neighbor added something else that would shift how this entire story of Roseanne Quinn and her murder would be talked and written about. And honestly, we have no proof that any of what this older neighbor said was even true. But she said that after that initial fight where she had found her on the floor with a black eye, that she often heard sounds coming from Roseanne's apartment that sounded both like fighting and like sex. She said that Roseanne had started bringing home different men all the time and engaged in what sounded to her like rough sex. Like she was into like rough sex with strangers. Um, Again, that's not corroborated by anyone other than like a neighbor hearing sounds coming from an apartment and making an assumption. Um, So with this new information in hand, the detectives head back over to Roseanne's apartment to talk to like the lab guys to see if they were able to find anything. Um, And the CSIs, I guess you would call them, um, had found traces of seminal fluid inside Roseanne, but no sign of the kind of like vaginal trauma that would indicate rape. So... She had had sex, whether or not it was for, they couldn't, there was no like way to determine if it was forcible or if it was consensual. Uh And it's interesting to note, this is back in the seventies, right? So like DNA, none of that exists yet. Um, And so there's like, all they have is that they can use that information to, you know, try to figure out what happened, Mm -hmm. but they can't find the guy based off of it. And as this information is being relayed to detectives by the crime scene guys, the phone in Roseanne's kitchen starts to ring. When the detective answered the phone, a man asked, hi, is Roseanne there? And the detective said, no. And uh, would you like to leave a message? Then the man asked, is she okay? I I heard she was sick or something, and I just wanted to see if if she was okay. The detective's like, you heard she was sick? And then the detective says, sir, can I please have your name? 
Then there's silence. Then the detective more forcefully asks, Sir, can I please have your name? And then there's a click and a dial tone. The caller had hung up. Mm. So at this point, the detectives only have two leads. They need to find Freddie Watson, and they need to find out if Roseanne had met someone on Monday night and brought him home with her. So they speak to several of the people who had been hanging out at Tweed's Bar on the night of January 1st. The f- they are able to piece together that on that evening, two men who were not regulars of the bar had been there that night. One was older and one was younger, and that it's possible they were brothers because they kind of looked similar. The witnesses say that the older guy left around 11, but the younger one stayed and had been talking to a Tweed's regular everyone called The Artist. So detectives are able to track down the artist who tells him that he was there that night and that he had been chatting up a young man whose name was Charlie Smith and that Charlie Smith had paid him $6 for two sketches, one of Mickey Mouse and (sighs) one of Donald Duck. So remembering the pictures that were found on the desk next to Roseanne's bed, police know they've got to find Charlie Smith, which is most likely not his name, but they got to find this guy. So by the Friday after her murder, the news of her death finally became like public it had been released to the public and for days vanya it was like splashed all over the newspapers like with headlines like school teacher by day you know like sex crazed you know disco Aww. tech dweller by night <sighs> um because she i mean she was this really young petite tiny um catholic school teacher who worked with deaf kids she wasn't just you know like she's dedicated her whole life to teaching deaf children yeah. and and then to to suggest that at night she was doing drugs and hooking up with different men every night and doing all this stuff. So that was the narrative, not like a young woman lost her life and we need to find the person who did this. Um, so, yeah, the, the tabloids went nuts. They turned Roseanne's story into a cautionary tale about one night stands. And let's be honest, you guys. This is 1973. This is in New York City. This is a 28-year-old single woman. Mm-hmm. She was doing what most women her age were doing. Mm-hmm. This was... You know, this was that time period, like, free love, women's liberation. Also, like, this is um, pre-HIV AIDS and, like, sexually transmitted diseases weren't, like, a thing people worried about. So she was just doing what most women her age were doing. Um, But the sensationalization of her murder was very typical of the attitude in the 70s, that it was a woman's job not to get rape and murdered, not a man's job not to commit rape and murder. Oh, remember that episode? Yes. Yeah, I'll I'll be gone in the dark where you're like, wait, what? Okay, sorry. That's watch that documentary if you haven't. They do a good job of diving into the attitude towards sex crimes against women in the seventies. Yeah. Um, detectives, meanwhile, had located Freddie Watson, who had an airtight alibi and had officially been ruled out as a suspect. So now they only have one lead. They need to find Charlie Smith. So when trying to get a description of the man seen with Roseanne that night, most of the witnesses had a hard time describing him. Like some said he was like had light hair. Some said he had dark hair. Some said he was tall. Some said he was short. Like they were just Crazy. people could not like really recall what he looks like. But strangely, most of the people that had been in the bar that night were able to give a clear description of the older man that had come into the bar with him and had left early. So with nothing else to go on, police decide to release this composite sketch of Charlie Smith's older brother slash friend in the papers and identify him as a person of interest in the murder of Roseanne Quinn. Okay. I tried to write this kind of like a story. Let me know if it works when I'm done. I'm loving it. So we're we're switching tides a little here. So when Gary Guest grabbed several newspapers that Sunday morning, he was relieved to see that there was nothing about Roseanne Quinn's murder on the cover of any of them. But as he flipped through the New York Times, he stopped in horror when he saw 
that there was a composite sketch of him staring back at him from inside the paper. Gary panicked and called his lawyer. He told them he, he needed to tell them something and that he was in trouble, but it wasn't something he could tell them over the phone. So Gary Guest met John Wayne Wilson in the summer of 1970 when he had been walking down the street and the two of them made eye contact. They started talking and Gary eventually invited John Wayne back to his apartment. They talked for hours, they laughed, and then, of course, they boned. Mm -hmm, (laughs) They had sex. mm -hmm. And John Wayne stayed. John Wayne Wilson was a handsome man in his 20s who came from a small town in Indiana. He'd never even graduated from high school. And so as a result of this, John Wayne had had difficulty finding a job when he came to New York. And so he turned to what I think a lot of people in his position in this time period turned to, which was hustling. So uh, sex was the only way that John Wayne Wilson had ever been able to make money. And usually, in his line of work, the way to make the big bucks was to have sex with other men. So although uh, John Wayne, according to anybody who knew him well, including Gary Guest, who was sleeping with him, said that he wasn't gay. You know, he just, like, didn't have an issue having sex with men. In fact, he actually had a wife back in Florida. um, And he and Gary Guest continued their relationship John Wayne even moved into Gary's uh, 32nd floor penthouse on the Upper West Side. But eventually the sexual aspect of their relationship ended. But the friendship never did. And the two became the best of friends and were for years. Mm. So John Wayne Wilson had gone home for Christmas in 1972 with his now pregnant wife, Kathy. But he had flown back to New York to spend New Year's with his best friend, Gary. This is what Gary tells his lawyer. He then told the lawyer that on New Year's Day, he and John Wayne had gone out to dinner and then decided to stop in Tweed's bar for a drink to get out of the cold for a bit. Having partied hard in Times Square the night before on New Year's Eve, Gary was tired and around 11 p.m. he told John Wayne he wanted to go home. John Wayne told him, go ahead, and that he was going to stay for one more. Later that night, around 4 a.m., Gary found John Wayne sitting on his couch in the living room staring out the window, almost like he was in a trance. When he asked him what was wrong, John Wayne told him, told him that he'd killed the school teacher that they had met earlier at Tweed's. He said that he'd gone to her place to have sex, and when he had failed to get an erection, she started to make fun of him and then screamed insults at him and told him to get out. And he told Gary that, you know, she was just so mean that he snapped. So although Gary is like, there's no way. I've known this man for years. He's my best friend. Like, he's never been violent. He has a hard time believing this story, but... He agrees, well, if you, we got to get you out of town if you did that. And um, he's like, so he buys him a plane ticket to Miami to get out of town. On January 2nd, uh, Gary Guest grabbed all the newspapers, but there was nothing about a murdered school teacher. This was the day after, so she hadn't even been found yet Uh. at this point. Then on the 3rd, he did the same, and still there was nothing in the papers about about a school teacher being murdered, but he could not stop thinking about what John Wayne had said he had done. So he got out his phone book and he looked up Roseanne Quinn and there was only one name listed in Manhattan. So he dialed the number. A man answered, a man who sounded an awful lot like a cop. Then when the man had demanded his name, he had hung up the phone. So that phone call while police were in her apartment was Gary Guest, y'all. So when the news finally broke about her murder on Friday, Gary called John Wayne and told him that he should probably get out of Miami, where he'd already had some legal troubles previously, and go back to Indiana and Lilo, maybe stay with his brother for a while. So then he bought him a ticket to fly back to Indiana and told him he would be in touch. He felt very scared for his friend. Because this was like, I mean, it's hard to imagine that you would ever like help someone who murdered yeah. somebody. But, but when it's like, he's clearly in love with John Wayne, oh. even though... 
they are best friends too. Mm-hmm. But um, but like he feels more, you know, it's like his family in his in his way. And he's trying to protect him. But he had felt so scared for him. That's why he was doing all these things. But when he'd seen that composite sketch of his face, it was the first time that Gary felt scared for himself. Because recognizing, oh, people are looking for me. And I have been helping like a, someone who confessed to killing someone. Oh, my God. So the lawyer, after hearing all of this, advises that he go to the police and offer them the name and location of Roseanne's murderer for in exchange for immunity from any of the crimes he had committed in helping after the fact. So that's what he did. The police uh, wired Gary's phone, and then they had him call John Wayne to confirm where he was. John Wayne said he was in Indiana with his brother. So they've got confirmation of location and that it's him. The detectives immediately hop on a plane. The next day, they knock on the door. And when they enter the apartment, uh, John Wayne is just, like, laying on the couch. And he doesn't even, like, get up fast. He's, like, cool as a cucumber, telling police, hold on so I can grab some shoes before we go. While interviewing him, he admits to being in New York on January 1st. He admitted to having a drink at Tweed's bar. But when asked about Roseanne Quinn, he denied ever having even met her. He denied this over and over and over until police finally said to John Wayne, um... I hate to break it to you, pal, but Gary gave you up. Like he told us that you told him you killed her. And with the realization that his best friend had betrayed him, John Wayne confessed to everything. He told police that the two of them had had sex. And then afterwards, when he wanted to lay and cuddle, she got real mouthy with him and was mean and did like a whole 180, tried to throw him out and something inside of him snapped and he'd killed her. So he goes to prison. They send him to Bellevue for a psychiatric evaluation um, because the his defense attorney wants to say it was like not guilty by reason of insanity. insanity. Mm. But due to like poor management, overcrowding and just like miscommunication, he is sent back after spending two weeks in Bellevue without ever actually receiving a full psychiatric evaluation. Then while he's being held in what they call the tombs, he gets into a fight with like a, a prison guard and... Um, the prison guard comes back with like fresh laundry for him, throws it on the bed. And he's like, why don't you kill yourself with this? And then that's what he did. John uh. Wayne Wilson hung himself in his jail cell. So while he never stood trial um, in a weird way, that's how this story came to an end. You know, he took his own life. But here's the thing that I want to talk about that I got this one just from even rereading what I wrote out. But I don't know if you noticed the subtle difference in the two stories he told his friend yeah. versus what he told the cops. So he told his friend that he was unable to get an erection and that she started to make fun of him. Yeah. And that's what made him stop. And he told the police that they had sex. And then afterwards, she was rude and tried to throw him out. And then you can't forget that there was seminal fluid found in her in her body. There was also that candle, which would suggest, you know, like, sexual rage yeah. um and so a lot of people believe what happened was kind of a combination of the two stories and it's very upsetting and we'll never know honestly but um that he probably couldn't get an erection and maybe she did make fun of him they said one of the things in the book that i did read about her was that you know it i think these days we might describe it as like bipolar they said that it was like there were two hers not like a double life but was like sometimes she would be very withdrawn uh-huh. and quiet and she'd still go to the bar but she'd sit in the corner and just read a book and she didn't talk to anyone and then other times she would be super loud and boisterous and she'd talk to everybody and she would be you know like the life of the party and you never really knew who you were going to get and so interesting so i think i mean that's that's undiagnosed that was just based on the way that people talked about her 
Yeah. And a lot of people stopped agreeing to talk to journalists about her after all the tabloid stuff because they didn't want to tarnish her name. They're yeah. like, she was not this like double life secret, you know, bad girl at night, you know, angel by day. But they stopped talking because they were like, I'm not going to give you any more ammunition to like try to disparage this young woman. She's gone. Yeah, She was known to like she could get in your face, you know, like she could be in one of those moods where she would make fun of you or mock you or be that was that was it was possible she would do something like that. So people who have examined this think that what happened was is that he probably couldn't get he'd been drinking a lot, probably couldn't get it up. She maybe said something to him, you know, that was probably even a joke, not even meaning to be yeah. mean, but he just like something broke inside of him because it's like all he's ever been successful at in life is having sex. And he was feeling very, you know, mm. I don't know, dejected. And so they think that he probably killed her and then had sex with her yeah, because the rage that he had felt had given him what he needed to to get capable of having sex. That is so crazy. You know, I think about, because both Evan and I worked late nights at, you know, a bar, and there were times where people were so drunk and, like, leaving with each other. I was always so stressed out for people because I was like, oh, my God. I know. You don't know you're who like, you're leaving with. Safe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it probably is fine, but maybe not, you know? Right, well, you, and there's no way to know if it's a stranger, right? It's always kind of a you know a risk hopefully it's one that you're making with a sound mind and it doesn't seem like the way people talked about it it wasn't like right he was drunker than her per the stories that, that they were able to find or that i heard i also um didn't get into there was a lot of stuff about how she when she was six she had like school like polio oh. and ended up having to have like massive surgery on her spine but the surgery didn't correct the problem and she walked with a limp and had kind of like a weird shaped misshapen back and she was very self-conscious about her body hmm. um and thought that she would never be able to have the things that women in that day and age were supposed to aspire to like a husband and you know kids mm-hmm. and she was like i'm too you know i'm too my body's too disgusting for anyone to ever want that with me and so maybe maybe that contributed to like the types of men she she found Mm -hmm. you know she felt like she couldn't do better than you know some like dude in a bar um again that's just speculative and then he also had like a really kind of traumatic childhood as well he was hit by a car when he was eight and everything about him changed after that so he got brain brain injury which is common oh I wonder if this was the first time he's done something like this then. Maybe not. Well, they, as far as, maybe not. But as far as anyone knows, this is the, and because he killed himself, this is the one and only time he ever, ever did this as far as it's known. Um, But that, you know, he suffered a lot of trauma to his his head. Um, He was never able to like fully get full capacity back there, which is why he wasn't able to finish school, Mm. never was able to figure out how to do anything but sell his body to make money and like commit robberies and stuff like that so it just felt like the most tragic story like on you know on both sides not that i i mean he should definitely not have murdered her at all but it was an interesting thing to read this this reporter's book that was like where she spent a lot of time talking to his his family to to gary to his his wife kathy um and got some like real insight to who he was before all of this and how it did seem like something broke inside him Huh. And um, so, yeah, I picked this because this is also a story about how a one night stand ended the the course of Roseanne's life and drastically altered the 
the remaining few months of uh, John Wayne uh, Wilson's yeah, life. Yeah, wow. But that's about about it in terms of and New York City. New Year's Christmas time right. that was in there too. Yeah. yeah, that was my tie-in. Well, that's um, a good tie-in. This is a fascinating story and I love the way you laid it out. It was really interesting. It's, it's, I also watched, I decided to just go for it knowing that everything I had read said that the movie was like loosely based and it was. It was so loose, like based on the actual facts. But I did watch Looking for Mr. Goodbar with Diane Keaton and Richard Gere and it's so 70s. The music is so fun. But yeah. honestly... I had to watch it on YouTube because it's not streaming anywhere. So the quality wasn't great. Or maybe that's just because of when it was made. But I have to say when the movie ended, I felt like physically sick to my stomach. So I can't I can't recommend it. I was like, even though I knew it was coming the whole time, I was like, this is just mm -mm." maybe that's why you can't find it anywhere. I don't know. But those are two huge actors, Richard Gere and. Oh, yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. And it's 1977. You know, when the movie came out, it's like so much good disco music and the yeah. fashion is fabulous. And but um, yeah, I don't know that I could say I recommend this one, but yeah. I did watch it to see. And they definitely took a lot of liberties with the story. So I'm glad I didn't read the novel that the book that the movie was based off of. I read the the, the novel written by the journalist that yeah. was meant to be nonfiction. Fascinating yeah. stuff. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, my God. This was a wild mix. Yes. If anybody has like a rom-com idea mm-hmm. that they want Vanya to cover or a, a crime that you're interested in having us cover that you could see being tied into an existing rom-com please hit us up yep. you know where to find us you can find us on all the social medias or you can email us at romcrimepodcast at gmail.com yep and we will talk to y'all later yep. bye